Hello, hello. Welcome back to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay. And yes, I'm back. I skipped last week because I was dealing with some technical difficulties. And I know, I'm like still kind of new to this. This podcasting thing is still, um, there's still a lot of things I have to navigate trying to figure it out. And I'm so grateful for everyone's patience, for bearing with me, etc. But I am back this week and I'm really excited. A lot of things have happened. Um, for one, I've been at the movie theater and I know a lot of people are asking and waiting for me to review a particular movie. And look, I was planning to. It was literally written in my calendar like months in advance. But because of the SAG strike, I will not be doing any movie reviews until uh, they say I can do so. It's a little bit complicated. So if you're kind of out of the loop with the whole SAG strike thing, um, SAG-AFRA is on strike. So the union representing Hollywood actors is on strike because the AMPTP, which is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, it's this big group. They represent um, Disney, Netflix, Apple, etc. And they were in negotiations with sag -Afra. They were also in negotiations with the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America. And basically, they're not playing nice with these negotiations. So that's why WGA and sag -Afra are both on strike currently. The thing is, when sag -Afra went on strike, they released guidelines for influencers. And they suggested strongly that influencers not promote any movies. The thing is, these guidelines are not very clear, and I've talked a lot about this with a lot of my peers, like people who also do video essays and commentary, and none of us could really figure out what is allowed and what's not allowed because critics, for example, are allowed to still continue critiquing, um, but influencers are not allowed to promote, but then some people believe that the promotion just relates to, you know, doing red carpet appearances and working with the studios themselves to make uh, promotional content. But there's also like some people who believe that doing reviews is considered promotional content. And I've had a couple friends like reach out to sag representatives to ask them for clarifications. But even then, like different people have said different things. And so... I don't really know what I'm supposed to do because I think I'm kind of like in that intersection between an influencer and a critic. And I think for me especially, um, because I want to join sag -Afra in the future, I've just like decided to play it super safe. I don't want to upset them in any way. And also, you know what? Like I do stand by Hollywood actors and writers anyway. So I, I don't really want to promote these movies if the people in them are not getting um, paid properly. And that's another thing, like a lot of people have this misconception that actors get paid tons of money, which is true because I was actually looking this up and recently Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling were paid $12.5 million each. Um, Killian Murphy was paid $10 million uh, for their recent work. So yeah, these actors clearly making a lot, but... Most actors who are represented by SAG-AFRA are not. Actually, only 12.7% of SAG members make the annual $26,470, which is needed to qualify for union health insurance. And actors make a median salary of $46,960. Um, 
back in 2021 when I guess they last surveyed. And so there is like a wide range of <laughs> salaries given to these actors and only a very, very small percentage of them are actually making boatloads of money. Most people can't afford the health insurance or can't uh, qualify to meet the health insurance. Most people cannot afford to pay for their families. And something that I also learned during all this is that Hollywood has started to film in different locations. Canada is a really popular location for shooting. A lot more projects have moved away from like Los Angeles studios. And because of that, actors have to also pay for their housing when they shoot in other locations. And apparently, the actors only get like a lump sum at the beginning for housing and it's not that much. And that's also for the entire series. So every season, they obviously have less and less money um, to pay for housing, but they still have to pay for housing because they still have to be shooting out there. And that just like sounds really unfair, especially because a lot of actors don't live in like Vancouver or whatever that they're shooting. And so they have to pay double rent on top of just not making that much money to begin with and then not making residuals. It's just a really fucked scenario. Especially when you consider how much money the CEOs of these production companies are making. So Bob Iger, who is the Disney CEO, his 2023 pay package was valued at $27 million. David Zaslav, who is the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, um, his 2022 compensation package hit $39.3 million. So clearly these people are making tons of money. They definitely have money to spare. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just like super, super unfair what's happening. And I totally, totally support unions. Um, it is like a bit of a bummer because I do have a lot of commentary, especially um, revolving the costume aspects of the media that I've seen recently. But, you know, it's for the greater cause. I think that if SAG-AFRA republishes like new stipulations for quote-unquote influencers, but I think at this point, I am like in the influencer category. I'm not in like the film critic category uh, just by virtue of like being on YouTube and having a face associated with my YouTube. So, you know, everything's going to be put on pause. It's not a big deal. I'll open the vault um, when things are better and hopefully you all will still care about certain movies by then. But I just wanted to like clarify that because I know a lot of people have been asking me about it and it's just, it's not going to happen. Unfortunately, it is what it is. I've also had to call back some other video ideas that I've been doing just because they've been about like other Hollywood movies. And again, according to like SAC Afro stipulations, we're not supposed to be promoting struck product. And um, it is a little bit confusing about whether or not struck product also includes movies and TV shows that have already been released, that have already like finished or been canceled. It's just, it's very unclear and I'm just trying to like not get into trouble. So yeah, I've had to call back some projects. That being said, I'm going to be focusing more on fashion and beauty um, for the time being. And that's fine. That's totally fine because I love those things too. And a lot of crazy things are always happening in the fashion industry and especially the beauty industry, which we'll be talking a little bit about today. Um, but yeah, also I just wanted to say one last thing about the whole sag after strike because I've learned so much about the whole acting industry and how things work for people who are not like Leonardo DiCaprio. And there was like this one article that I read when the strike was first um, announced 
And it was about the TV show Orange is the New Black and the way that the cast of that TV show has been paid and, you know, the struggles that they're going through. And it was it was very eye-opening because I remember watching Orange is the New Black when it first premiered. I loved the show. I didn't actually finish it because, again, I've said this before, I have issues with, like, finishing TV shows when I'm watching them in real time because like the season will air, it will end, and then I'll just like forget about it when the next season comes around. Or like it's it's hard for me to remember to put it in my watch list. And also the hype of it has kind of died. Also, I kind of forgot what happened last season. So I'm just like not as motivated to continue watching. But anyways, like Orange is the New Black, it was a really great show. And it did really well also. It was like also like a critically successful show. Um, it launched like the careers of Laverne Cox and Uzo Aduba, who, you know, they're both like phenomenal actresses. And it's also kind of natural for in a TV show, like a couple actors, even though everyone in the cast might be amazing. Like it usually is where just like a couple actors kind of get picked up um, and put into a bunch of other productions. So that's like not the abnormal part. The abnormal part is just like how little these actors and actresses were paid for this TV show considering it was a success. This one actress, Kimiko Glenn, she was in also uh, Waitress, the Broadway musical. She's a great singer. I love her. But she posted a TikTok like a while back of her getting her residual checks and it was like $27. And she was a pretty prominent side character on the show. I think one thing that was interesting is that Orange is the New Black is like an ensemble cast mostly. Like there are a few main characters, but everyone in the cast kind of gets their moment to shine. They get their own plot lines. And I think that's really cool because do you ever watch a movie or TV show, mostly a TV show sometimes, and you're like, the main character is actually not that interesting and everyone around them is more interesting. That's kind of what I felt about Orange is the New Black, but all the other characters also like were able to build their storylines. And so you weren't just stuck with like a boring main character. No offense, I did think the main character was kind of boring, but you know, I feel like that's how usually it is for some reason. Anyways, so Kimiko posted this on TikTok and then she reposted it again recently in light of all the SAG Afra strike news on Instagram and a flood of her comments were from her co-stars on that show talking about, you know, a similar circumstance of them just not getting paid. Um, Matt McGorry, he played a corrections officer on the show. He said that he kept his day job the entire time because it paid better than this mega hit TV show. Um, this other actress, Beth Dover, she said it actually cost her money to be in seasons three and four since she was cast as a local hire and had to fly herself out. Um, but because the opportunity was so exciting, she still participated in anyway. Because also I think like if you really want to be an actor, like a big actor, you kind of just accept roles, especially when you're starting out because it's so competitive and um, there's just like no guarantee that if you don't accept this role, you'll get any other work later on. And you know, everything's like a resume builder at the end of the day. So even if it costs you money, it might be worth it to get your name out and to have experience um, in your portfolio. But yeah, a lot of the cast members, they were still working day jobs, other jobs while doing the show. 
And The New Yorker did a profile on them, actually. And there was also this one actress, Emma Miles, who plays the ex-Amish meth addict in the show. She said that she was still working, like, her office job. She worked in a basement for a financial firm. And she said one day one of the candidates was on the phone with her and they paused the phone call and said, you sound exactly like the Amish meth head on Orange is the New Black. Has anyone ever told you that? So it did put a lot of things into perspective for me. I mean, deep down I knew that like not every actor is making tons and tons of money, but I think because a lot of TV shows, they build the narratives around like specific high paying actors you kind of like mostly focus on those people and you don't really think like oh well the person playing the police officer that was in one episode for 20 minutes they're technically a paid actor too so the strike is like rallying for people who are not getting paid enough to make a living off of what they're doing it's not rallying for people like I don't know, Kate Blanchett, though I love her. <laughs> I think also just like the other worst part about Orange is the New Black is because it was pitched as this very experimental show because it's about incarceration. It takes place in a woman's prison. And therefore, people, producers, investors, whatever, they I, – I don't really know how the – how production works, but, you know, whoever was, like, giving money, so investors, I guess. Producers? Are the producers the investors? Someone get back to me on that. Um, but, you know, like, whoever was giving them the money, it was a risk because they didn't know whether or not audiences would like it. And so they didn't give them that much money. And so they had a lower budget to um, pay everyone working on the project, which is why I think when you compare the show to Game of Thrones, which was also massively successful, the big stars in Game of Thrones were getting paid way more money in comparison to the big stars in Orange is the New Black. But I think what's messed up about it is because Orange is the New Black hired a lot of people, a lot of actors and actresses of marginalized identities and who would not as easily book roles um, because most roles are written for like a very specific type of like Hollywood uh, type of person, you know, like cis, white, um, skinny, etc. And so this show was an opportunity to really highlight um, the talents of these actors from these specific identities. And it's just like really upsetting that at the end of the day, they were kind of used for like their identities, their faces, and not properly compensated for it. But, you know, that's just – I guess that's just the way Hollywood is because I was really looking into the pay gaps, even just like the gender pay gap between a white actor, a white man actor, and a white woman actor, and it is very depressing. And so, yeah, a lot needs to change, um, but definitely what we need to start with is the AMPTP not screwing over um, – sag Afra members, actors who are not part of the top earning 5%. And also the AI stuff about it. So if you don't know about that, um, MPTP was trying to get background actors to basically just like sign away their faces so that AI could recreate their faces and use them in perpetuity for backgrounds um, in future TV shows and movies, which is crazy because one, they would only be paying those actors 
the one-day fee where they would scan their faces and then not pay them again afterwards, even though they keep using their likeness, which feels like identity theft. Um, And something that I didn't even think about before, but I was reading about it more, is that data breaches can happen. And just the fact that they're like scanning your faces and everything, someone not making a movie or TV show could easily find that, take that, steal that, and use it for their own like nefarious purposes. And you would just have your face like getting put into like deep fakes throughout the cyberspace, which is really scary. I think that's like one of my top fears especially as AI gets better and better. Like I feel like now you still can tell when something's a deep fake, but in the future, I feel like that's such a security breach. That's such a safety breach because someone could just put your face onto anything, have you say anything, have you do anything that could get you into legal trouble, that could get you like canceled or whatever. And you won't even actually be the person who did it. Like you didn't do those things. So It will be interesting to see how internet culture um, shifts and evolves to accommodate those kinds of instances because of how much misinformation travels these days. Like I feel like it'd be so easy for someone to fully believe like, oh, your favorite actor was in this weird porno or something um, when actually it was just their face that was used. I feel like people are really gullible and they're – going to have a perception about someone else that is not true and that's really scary for me Uh, because I'm already scared by people who just misinterpret my tweets and so this is like next level and I definitely don't think that I will ever be signing away consent to use my face in anything Um, though I feel like one potential reason why actors would do that even like major actors is to like age up or age down their faces when they're acting like in a movie where their character, um, you know, grows up throughout the movie where like timelines are skipped because that's that's something that happens often and usually like they'll just use makeup to pull that off but it's never super convincing and I think that actually using like AI filters would make it more convincing. Which brings me to the next topic I want to talk about, which is the age filter (laughs) on TikTok. So this has literally like put me into some kind of spiral, honestly. And I've really been trying to resist the whole like being afraid of aging. It's definitely a battle that I'm currently fighting and that I feel like I will always fight because I will be constantly getting older. And I don't know, like I looked a little busted. And usually when it comes to any kind of filters like this, I try not to take it too seriously, but there were all these dermatologists and plastic surgeons coming onto TikTok to talk about how the age filter is actually very accurate, which, you know, honestly, I feel like they were just trying to increase um, business. I think it was Big Derma who was pushing these lies out because... I don't know. I also was reading this article about um, the age filter that was published in Heist Nobiety and they interviewed this plastic surgeon whose name is David Schaefer and he was quoted in the article and he talks about how um, everyone ages differently so it's really hard to predict with accuracy what someone would look like because, you know, at the end of the day, the way that you age also is very different depending on what ethnic group you belong to. So this dermatologist, Hadley King, who is also um, interviewed for this High Snobiety article, she talks about how 
there are different common hallmarks of facial aging seen in different ethnicities. So for example, people with darker skin and more melanin may show more hyperpigmentation but less thinning of the skin. East Asian people are often prone to more eye bags and sagging of the cheeks due to the skeletal framework. And the filter does not take any of those factors into account. So good news for myself, I guess, that I'm going to have sagging cheeks. Thank you, <laughs> Dr. King. <laughs> but then also like in general, uh, the age filter doesn't factor in any kind of like health practices that you might be incorporating. So Dr. Schaefer also talks about how people in the 1980s, the 50-year-olds back then looked much older than the 50-year-olds now uh, because they had different lifestyles back then. Like people smoked more tobacco, um, sleep schedules and nutrition, where you live, alcohol use, like skincare, how much sunscreen you put on. These are all factors that contribute to signs of aging. But I don't even know if I should like really get into that because at the end of the day, our culture is so scared of aging and it's something that's like been the case since forever. So it makes sense. Like if you read the picture of Dorian Gray that was written by Oscar Wilde in the Victorian era and that entire book is like this man is afraid of aging. <laughs> and then, you know, the whole like the mythology of the fountain of youth. So we've always been afraid of aging because I think we're all like deep down like afraid of dying, not to get super, super dark because aging makes you confront your own mortality. <laughs> um, but I don't really know what to do about that. Like I've really tried to psyop myself into not being afraid, but I think – because I've been like going into acting, I've recognized like how much youth matters in this particular industry, which has made me kind of stressed out. I mean, I totally understand why Alexa Demi has like lied about her age for years and why you can't find any information about her age online um, unless it's through like some gossip forums or whatever, Reddit. Because when you're in your 30s, people are just like less likely to hire you, which is upsetting and annoying. Youth is also just more marketable. Um, even in like the whole content creation field, like Gen Z has taken over TikTok. And I guess I technically am in Gen Z. I'm a millennial, so, you know, it, it really depends on the day, which uh, group I identify with. Uh, it depends on whether or not I part my hair to the side or I put my hair in the middle. But Gen Z dictates a lot of trends and so if you are not like constantly on the internet and not following what's happening on TikTok then you're kind of like old news and you still make like the soy boy face or whatever and you use like outdated meme jokes that come off as chuggy because anything that existed that was trendy like five years ago is now um no longer cool like it hasn't it hasn't been long enough where it's like vintage and people want to replicate it you're just like uncool and so yeah it's something that is more difficult because I also feel like as you get older it's harder to have the time to really pay attention to what's going on on the internet I also feel like I've become super fatigued by being on the internet for this long I grew up on the internet I 
um, did remember having a childhood pre-internet, but I made a Facebook when I was 11 years old, which I know is technically not allowed because I think you have to be 13 to be on Facebook, but I lied, okay? I lied about my age and I joined Facebook at 11 years old and I was posting photos of myself. Like I was doing that photo dump thing where you post like 60 photos unfiltered of yourself hanging out with your friends in one night and you put it in an album and you post it on Facebook and you maybe get like two likes on the whole thing, but it felt so good to do that. And I honestly miss that part of the internet because it was very like unfiltered. It was very new and I wanna say like it was still superficial, but in a way that was more authentic, if that makes sense. Because people didn't really have expectations on how you were supposed to behave on the internet. So it was like a wild, wild west. You could really just do whatever you want. Um, And I feel like, especially with Facebook, because it wasn't, it's not like Instagram, it's not like TikTok. You have to know people to add them on Facebook. So strangers are not looking at it. And so you're really only existing within your own niche community. And your own niche community dictates like what's considered cool or whatnot. But it mostly is a replication of what exists like outside of the internet. So everyone that I had on my Facebook were people that I went to school with. Um, And so like, I don't know, like the girls who were cool on Facebook were like the ones who were popular in school. (laughs) And Nowadays, I think it's a lot more stressful because social media is so global. So rather than just being stressed about like what's considered cool within your small town, you're like considering what's cool within the entire country, the entire world. And yeah, it's just, I don't want to say that you deal with less pressure when you're focused on your own small community, but I will say that there's less like information. There's less contradictory advice. Like you kind of have one format that you're trying to copy. You don't have all this excess fluff just like all over the internet, like intercepting your brain, making you confused. Because right now I feel very confused. I don't know if this has come across in this podcast episode so far, but I just feel like I'm exposed to too much on the internet. That's kind of also why I didn't join Threads. I don't even know if people still use Threads, honestly. Um, If you don't know what Threads is, it's like Instagram's Twitter uh, competitor that Mark Zuckerberg recently launched earlier this month. Or was it late last month? It's, It's a relatively new thing. And in the first week that Threads was dropped, so many of my friends were hopping on the Threads train and they were posting about it and they were like, oh my God, this is so fun. This is like Twitter, but better. And I was very, very close to creating a Threads. The reason why I hesitated was because Threads was set up to be connected with your Instagram account. And if you wanted to delete your Threads account, it would delete your Instagram account. So I was like, I don't know if I can commit to this uh, level of long-term commitment because I'm not deleting my Instagram. So I was like, if I make a Threads, I'm just going to have to stay here or my Threads profile will just be active, which feels weird to me. So I abstained. I'm glad I abstained because I was like, I actually don't have time to run so many different social media accounts. And one of my friends who I went out to lunch with, she was like, "I, I don't think I have like another persona I could put online. And I think that's so true because I think the way that we come across and the way that we use every social media platform is different. And maybe we're not like thinking about it so actively, but 
it does feel like the version of me on Instagram is different from the version of me on Twitter. And I'm kind of like controlling what I'm posting on Twitter, what I'm posting on Instagram, what I'm posting on YouTube. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to also think about like posting on threads. That's just so much work. That's so much time being online. And yeah, all of this is to say that I'm trying to spend less time online because I've been online for so long. My brain is like rotted from being online for so long. Um, I need to really get off Twitter. I <laughs> love being on Twitter for the jokes, but I also feel like it is such a aggressive space. Like people are constantly angry on that website and you could post something that you think is not controversial at all and someone will find a way to get their feelings hurt about it and blow it out of proportion and due to our brain's negativity bias the only replies I remember are the replies disagreeing with me I have lots of people on Twitter who genuinely interact with me in a very kind way and I just like those interactions just don't stick with me in the same way that negative people do and so I'll like you know I'll post something like I love Killian Murphy or something. Oh, actually, you know what? I posted that Killian Murphy is a short king. And then someone criticized me for saying that because they said he's not short. For reference, Killian Murphy is five foot seven. And granted, maybe it depends where you live, whether or not five foot seven is considered short or not. But in my mind, I've always considered like five seven to be like short king height. Taller than me, I'm five one but like short king height. And I just like, I started getting annoyed with this person who was arguing with me over this when it doesn't even fucking matter. I was like, this is literally not something that is threatening anyone's life. This is not anything political even. And yet I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it for longer than 30 seconds. So Twitter is just that kind of space and I really wanted to be off it. I've also really wanted to be off of TikTok. Honestly, I've really wanted to be off of Instagram too. But because my career is on like content creation, I can't. <laughs> I can't leave these platforms. Not even because I'm actively like on them in a professional sense. If you look at my TikTok, I probably post like once a month when I feel like it. I post on Instagram also like very sparingly. Twitter, I don't even try to advertise that I have because I don't want more people following me on it because then it just like increases my audience to larger which means the chances that my tweets will not meet their target demographic aka they will meet like people who are just mean and annoying is higher so I don't even want more followers on Twitter but it's like the fact that I feel like I have to be ahead of the current discourse like I have to know what's going on or else I'm out of the loop or else I'm chuggy or else like the jokes that I make in my YouTube videos like they're not funny and they're cringy and you know I'm just like thinking about all these things which keeps me plugged in and um leads me to dedicate too much time to my virtual avatar versus like to my real life there are so many books I would rather be reading than scrolling um there are so many even like movies and tv shows I would rather be watching than just like being on tiktok but I don't know it's also the way that these platforms are designed. They're kind of designed to keep your attention, to have you be on that platform for as long as possible. And to be honest, I've read lots of self-help books about this. I've like tried every method when it comes to creating like 
healthy boundaries between technology and myself. And I haven't yet found that cheat code. So if anyone has had luck just not being on social media as often, um, I would love to know. Please write me an email, highbrowbymina at gmail.com. And perhaps I will share your advice because I think this is something that plagues a lot of people. Is just something that we feel like we don't have control to undo. Because then there's also FOMO. Even just getting internet jokes is a one thing, but then also like you feel the sense of connection with other people online when you're scrolling online knowing that they're also scrolling online. Um, and I remember when AIM and Messenger and all those like iChat uh, type of platforms were first launched, it was so exciting to see someone who was your friend because, I don't know, I didn't talk to strangers on AIM. I'm sure some people did. But it was so fun to see like your friend have this little green dot uh, next to their username that says they were online. It's like, oh, we can chat. We can talk. They're also on their computer. I'm on my computer. And it did foster that kind of connectivity. But now I think we're just online too much where it feels like very isolating and lonely rather than connected if I really think about it. Because it's just like information overload. I'm never like in the mood to actually talk. I get so much anxiety when someone messages me uh, because then I'm like, oh, fuck, I have to answer them back. Whereas I, when I think about how when I was a kid and I was like on AIM, it was so exciting to be chatting because I could log off because – Ultimately, um, once we finished our conversation, I'd be like, I gotta go. Or they'd be like, I gotta go. And then the chat closes. Whereas now, like, no one ever says, like, GTG or BRB. It's kind of like you're expected to be perpetually online because everyone carries their phone everywhere. Everyone is therefore accessible in some capacity. And I honestly feel like surveillance keeps increasing because I've been reading some articles about Find My Friends, which if you don't have this service turned on, it's basically like an app that allows you to see where your friends are um, geographically. <laughs> you have to turn it on for other people. So it's not like your friends like automatically know where you are just because they have your contact. But um on your iPhone you could just share your location with someone like indefinitely and they just like have a little pin for wherever you are or wherever your phone is um, at all times and my friend Laura Pitcher actually wrote an article about it I think for Vice and it's interesting because Find My Friends kind of existed on Snapchat like Snapchat had a location sharing feature I'm not on Snapchat anymore but I remember that was like a really big thing and it was also like kind of addicting to look at all your friends and where they were at all times, <laughs> even though it was like kind of creepy, but I would just be bored. I'd be like, oh, I wonder what my friend is doing today. And then I would look and I'm like, oh, they're at home right now. Or it's like, oh, they're at the library right now. And we all do it. So I'm not going to take any like people telling me that's creepy. Like I know we all do it. But recently I've been thinking about how like mutual sharing can be really weird and an invasion of privacy, especially because when you turn off the find my friends feature, the other person gets notified, which I feel like shouldn't happen. Um, so I have like people on my find my friends who I literally am not even friends with anymore, 
but it feels so aggressive for me to turn off my location sharing knowing that they're going to get like a notification that I did that um, as if like solidifying the fact that we are no longer friends. And so I've just like not dealt with it, but it does weird me out seeing where their location is at all times and knowing that they can do the same for me. And I mean, in Laura's article, she talks about this one person, Marisa Lopez, who says she checks the app around 20 times a day, which is sweet, but also I think like concerning. I haven't been able to fully process why it makes me so uncomfortable knowing that people are like spending that much time tracking where their friends are, but it does feel weird. Definitely feels weird. Like the idea that we're just becoming more and more okay with the constant surveillance, even if it's from our friends, just like the feeling of being watched all the time and people knowing where we are, like we're just like becoming more okay with that idea. I think that's what makes it weird for me personally. But I also understand like there are positives with it. For example, when I go out late at night and I know if I'm like I'm by myself, like I'm going to a bar or something and Usually my friends and I will be like, text me when you get home. But sometimes, you know, you just forget to text and you're a little drunk or whatever. Um, And this has happened with like my friends too. Like I'll tell them like, please text me when you get home. And they don't do it. But then I see like their location. I'm like, okay, they made it home. (laughs) And so from a safety perspective, I understand where that comes from. But I was also thinking about how now – I've become so paranoid about like my own safety, which is why I feel like I can't leave my house without my phone. But 20 years ago, people were roaming around without their phones all the time. They were going out, they were navigating the city and bad things like weren't necessarily happening because they didn't have their phone. But I think now because my phone is like my security blanket where The day I decide not to bring her out is the day that something's going to go wrong. And I just like, I can't have that happen. Even if the uh, statistics of that happening, the probability of that happening is really low. It's just like that 1% where it's like, what if, what if this was the day that I get kidnapped and tied to someone's basement and no one knows where my location is? So, you know, sometimes I wonder like if I was a man, would it be easier for me to not care about my phone and not want to bring her everywhere? I don't know. Um, Okay. The last thing I want to talk about is this Vox article I read that was amazing. It's called Stop Trying to Have the Perfect Vacation. You're ruining everyone else's and it's by Rebecca Jennings. I read a lot of Rebecca Jennings um, articles. I think she's a great writer and this was a banger, I gotta say. But basically the gist of the article is the idea of like people over planning their vacations and basically like ruining everyone's time and everyone else's time (laughs) because of it. So on TikTok, there were a couple viral videos of, you know, one, one of the videos was a person who was in Paris and they were talking about how Paris like smells like piss, cheese, and armpit and, you know, criticizing Paris, which I thought was kind of funny because even though I personally love Paris, I think it's funny how much people romanticize it so when I see content of people like going the other way of like not romanticizing it it, I don't know it's just it's just funny to me another video was like kind of more annoying but this woman 
was arguing that any influencer who posts pretty photos of the Amalfi Coast deserves jail time because they neglected to mention the logistics of actually getting there and then proceeded to say, this is literal manual labor, not vacation. I think she was joking. I think everyone's joking. Um, But it did make some people angry because it feeds into this idea of the American tourist just wanting everything to go their way, being super difficult to deal with, like demanding things constantly, not abiding by like the social etiquette presented by these other countries and the kind of cultural values that are exhibited in these countries. And you know what? Like it's true. American tourists are really annoying. Like that's like my biggest, one of my biggest Fear is just like coming across as an American tourist in a country. I think there is nothing more embarrassing to me than going into a country not knowing any words of that country's language. And that was my experience when I was in Italy because that trip was so rushed. Um, I was literally told I was going like a couple days before I had to go. So I didn't have time to do my little Duolingo prep. And it was embarrassing. I was there and I was embarrassed that I only knew how to say like ciao. So yeah, I understand that American tourists are annoying, but the article Rebecca was talking about how also a lot of like tourism industries, they have like catered specifically to the annoying American tourist, which has made them even more annoying. Uh, She writes, in catering to Western tastes, developers and the dollars they seek aren't only killing the existing culture, they're ironically also killing what makes people want to visit a place. In the latest edition of his Barcelona Guide, the legendary travel author Rick Steves writes a eulogy for the Ramblas, a thriving market for locals that since become a tourist trap selling souvenirs and Instagram-ready fruit skewers. So there are these like specific guides and services that are trying to cater to travelers, mostly Western tourists, American tourists, by streamlining the whole process of traveling, by telling you exactly what your itinerary should be, by offering like expedite services to book tickets to museums and events just to make things easier but in the end it makes it really annoying for everyone actually so uh, for example she writes out there's been a rise of online travel agencies like Expedia and Viter that make vacation planning as easy as online shopping And she quotes the editor-in-chief of Travel Plus Leisure Jackie Gifford who says At any major museum in Europe, you need to book your tickets in advance. It's very rare you can go up and wing it. Rebecca goes on to say, There is not enough space at the restaurants we want to eat at, that the must-see museums sell out weeks in advance. These are not the fault of individual travelers clamoring to go there, the result of explicit decisions made by governments and corporations. The messy logistics are catered to us in the form of instant phone translations and English language apps to hail taxis and book apartments, and also by the literal aesthetics of the places we go. In attempts to woo wealthy cool seekers, developers design restaurants, hotels, and public spaces to look like facsimiles of the restaurants, hotels, and public spaces determined by Silicon Valley investors to be what cool people should want. A coffee shop in Beijing now can look the exact same as one in Buenos Aires and as one in your hometown. Our tourist dollars, after displacing innumerable families from neighborhoods they've occupied for generations, then turn those same neighborhoods into playgrounds specifically for us. She then quotes Jamaica Kincaid, who wrote in 1988, an ugly thing that is what you are when you will become a tourist. 
an ugly, empty thing, a stupid thing, a piece of rubbish pausing here and there to gaze at this and taste that. And it will never occur to you that the people who inhabit the place in which you have just paused cannot stand you. So essentially, all of these different like travel guides and online booking services, they make traveling feel so seamless. But in the end, it becomes too seamless that everyone has the same plan, has the same idea, which makes these spaces overcrowded, which makes it impossible for anyone who just like wants to wander into a museum one day to be able to. So it kind of forces everyone to go into this like extreme planning mode if you want to do what you want to do, which leads to a lot of people becoming super entitled to be super um, type A about their vacations because they have a concrete plan of all the items that they want to do and people just like don't end up relaxing anymore. On top of that, all these places are becoming like a lot more westernized and catering to specific tourists, which once again leads to that feedback loop of American tourists being babies because they're just used to people catering to them. So it's kind of a rig system and I'm definitely still in learning it. I don't know if I'm going to be traveling much the rest of the year. I did want to do like a trip to Greece at some point um, because I've never been to Greece, but I think the way that I would like to go from this point forward is I think pick certain things that you want to do for sure. Like if you go to Paris and you know you want to see the Notre Dame, then include that obviously in your list and plan for it because you know it's going to be a big tourist trap and therefore difficult to get into without tickets, difficult to deal with lines, whatever. So try to streamline those processes as much as possible, but don't plan out the entire trip from start to finish because I think the joy of being a traveler is also to do it leisurely and to be in a headspace of relaxation and fun and not be like a type A crazy person who demands everything to go their way and it's like your way or the highway and you become like really annoying for everyone, other tourists and for locals to deal with. So that's my suggestion. In the article... Steve's suggests also to visit second cities as opposed to, I guess, first cities. So he says, like, everybody goes to Paris, but what about Lyon? Everyone goes to Dublin. What about Belfast? Everyone goes to Edinburgh. What about Glasgow? And then also to, like, space out trips. So this other person suggested in the article, don't do, like, Greece, Italy, and France in one trip in 10 days. Uh, from a logistical standpoint, it's very difficult <laughs> and also very stressful because you're only going to be in a certain place for like X amount of days, but then there's also so much to do in these countries, in these cities. And so you're just like, you know, constantly in a rush. You're constantly getting hurried along. And once again, you're becoming that annoying tourist who is demanding and who's clearly not having fun. So I definitely agree with that. I think last year when I did my trip to France, I did two weeks in France and I considered doing other countries, but at the end of the day, I was really glad I just did two weeks in France because I was able to travel to multiple cities in France. But I wasn't like so stressed out because I had enough time in all the cities that I wanted to go to. So I know we're nearing the end of the travel season, um, but it was an interesting article, so I wanted to share it. And maybe it uh, has some recommendations for how to do an August vacation if you're going on vacation in August and you haven't fully planned it yet. Again, everything 
every article that I talk about is um, listed in the show notes. So yeah, happy reading. Those are the articles I read recently. And also, if you have an article that you think is interesting and you want me to read it, you can feel free to send it to me um, through my email, hirawamina at gmail.com. Okay. Thanks, everyone. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. I'll see you next week. Love ya. This podcast episode is edited by Sophie Carter, music by Olivia Martinez, and cover art by Lindsay Mintz, and is part of the Audio Boom Network. Thank you.